I'm Asan, and welcome to the 9320 History Podcast. This is the first of a series that we'll do over the course of next season, looking at different parts of, of, of City's history, whether that be games, managers, seasons, whatever it is. But as we have Stefan, Stefan as part of our team, and he was intimately involved with the board during the sale to Thaksin Shinawatra, and we've come up to the it, it is what ten years. Stefan, is that correct? Since since that almost takeover. almost to the almost to the day. Yeah, yeah, almost to the day. It's been ten years since that takeover. So that was kind of our starting point for for doing this podcast. And now we're at the point where we're going to talk really about boardroom battles and the history of the ownership of City. We'll focus really from Thaksin onwards, but. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Mr. Colin Savage, or Prestwich Blue, as many of you may know him from Blue Moon or from Twitter. So welcome, Colin. Hello. Welcome. It's nice to be um, part of the podcast. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, So look, I know where I want to begin with this is, before we began, you said to me that really every rift in City's boardroom can actually be traced back to 1970. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, probably a little bit earlier, actually. I mean, if you, it, it really all starts with uh, Joe Mercer and Malcolm Allison, surprisingly. Okay. Uh, City's boardroom was quite a stable place, and it, w- it was a well-run club. Uh, and in 1964, um, a guy called Albert Alexander became chairman. The Alexander family had been involved in City for many, many years. In fact, Albert's father, who was also called Albert, drove the bus at the 1904 FA Cup victory parade. So the family had got a lot of shares in City. They'd invested a lot of time and effort in City. And uh, young Albert, as I'll call him, hit the chair in 1964 when City were really at a low. And if you think we're at a low in kind of 1998, 99, the kind of early 60s were a really bad period where the club was dead. There was nothing going on, no hope. Young Albert came to the chair, got rid of the manager and brought in Joe Mercer. Now, the problem with Joe Mercer was brilliant as a man as he was, he'd uh, been quite poorly. He'd had a stroke in his previous role at Aston Villa and Joe knew he couldn't cope with a managerial role on his own. So he went out and bought, uh, brought in this young coach he'd met at Lillisall on coaching courses called Malcolm Allison. And apparently the story is, and I just read this a few minutes before we came to do this, uh, on the coach going to the first game, which was at Middlesbrough, Joe had said to Malcolm, I'm only doing this for a couple of years, Malcolm, then it's yours. And that was in 1965. Obviously, then we had our most successful period yeah. up to very recently. And um, and Joe stayed on as manager. And Malcolm was getting increasingly restless. And we went through this very successful period up to 1970, winning the um, Cup Winners' Cup and the League Cup and completing the domestic treble. And um, Malcolm started to get very restless. He wanted Joe to move over. Now, Joe probably would have done. Uh, I think he was a bit reluctant. But Malcolm kind of forced the issue um, by getting um, a supporter of it. Malcolm wanted the board to back him. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to be the boss. He wanted the board fully behind him. And he persuaded uh, someone, a wealthy businessman called Joe Smith, to buy a large chunk of shares from a guy called Frank Johnson, who was vice chairman. There was a boardroom kind of faction building up behind Malcolm. uh, And there was a bit of a battle over these shares because Johnson firstly agreed to sell, then then pulled away when he found out there was a bit of a coup going on. Mm. 
And this is where Peter Swales got involved as a sort of mediator. So, I mean, I obviously won't go into too many details, but uh, eventually Joe Mercer was forced out in a rather unsavoury way. And I was certainly around at the time and it was they couldn't decide what title to give him. They wanted to keep Joe Mercer. Why they didn't just put him on the board, I don't know. They wanted to give him a general manager type title, but the Allison faction didn't want anything with manager in it. So so Joe was was basically forced out. Malcolm had the had the floor to himself, as it were. Of course, he left soon afterwards. Um, Swales was in was in the chair, got in the chair at some point in the in the in the seventies. Uh, I'm not quite sure which year it was. Do you know and then the whole thing. Up? Do you know how he ended up in the the chairman's seat, so to speak, briefly? I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, Gary James might be a guy to ask, but it's all shrouded in a little. He came on on the board as this mediator. Mm. He was given a nominal amount of shares, I think, ten shares, and then somehow he got hold of a, a over the years got a majority. He was quite a forceful character, I think, and he had quite a few people on the board backing him who probably had more shares. Uh, and at some point, um, young Albert's son, Eric Alexander, had taken over as chairman, but he had no real power because um, the shares, the Alexander family didn't have 51% or more of the shares. So um, how quite how Swales became chairman, I'm not 100% sure. But he did become chairman, and that's where kind of the story starts, if you like. Obviously, I think people know that the Swales area, in fact, he brought Malcolm Allison back again for a second spell as manager. And that's probably where it all started to go wrong. Yeah. He started paying out big money for players, ripping up a very experienced team, selling the favourites. And we just got in this cycle of getting rid of the manager, getting someone else in, spending more money, getting rid of the manager, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this just went on and on and on. And eventually, of course, the Luton um, relegation happened and we went through a cycle then. What of, year was the Luton relegation? For the, any 83, listeners? 1983, okay. that was. We should never have gone down that season. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of started the rot off and we became a bit of a yo-yo club from there on in. Okay, so you think that was the kind of, that's where the, the, the seeds were planted of the kind of chaos that I grew up through, basically. Yeah, because we moved into a kind of, we got ourselves into more and more of a financial mess, and we aren't talking about the sort of numbers we're talking about these days. I mean, in those days, City's turnover was um, maybe a million quid, you know, in a in a decent year uh, back in the early seventies, which is absolutely nothing, of course, nothing these days. Mm. Um, but Swales got us into more and more of a mess financially. Um, and of course, this led to the forward with Franny movement in in the early nineties. And funnily enough, my son's first game was a game we played early season. Peter Reed was the manager. We played Blackburn at Main Road. That was the first time I take my son to a game. Uh, Reed was we lost two 0 fairly easily. Reed was sacked soon afterwards, and uh, there was there was a typical Swales out demo on the uh, on the forecourt at Main Road after the game. And my son thought this was quite normal behaviour. You know, you went to a game, what watched the team, and then went to throw bricks at the boardroom window. Um, Classic scene. It was normal for a while, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it was normal. It was quite normal. Yeah. During his time, Swales brought in a couple of uh, big investors. One was the Greenall Brewery, yep. and the other was a guy called Stephen Bowler, who founded the Quick Fit Chain and Mobin Kitchens. Mm-hmm. And he was a big supporter of Swales, and probably enabled him to stay in power longer than he probably should have done. Mm. But eventually, of course, um, Franny won his battle 
with Swales. And um, he brought in his own team in 1994. But there were still Swales people around the place. And there was this whole fifth column thing that was going on where... What does that mean? Because you're going to have to explain well, think, yeah, that again for the was, listeners. The thing was, everyone was seemed to be plotting against everyone else. Right. You hear various stories of Franny Lee's chairmanship. Some people said he was too domineering. Uh, other people said he didn't really grasp the scale of the job. Some other people will say he was, he was just in it for the money. One, one important thing that did happen, that did kind of set up the next few years was, uh, a year after he Franny took over the chairmanship in 1995, we floated on the uh, alternative stock market. Uh, Stefan Maynard, I think it was the off market at the time. It may have been plus markets. I, I'm not sure what it was called, but it was yeah, not the plus. main stock market, but, but uh, a secondary one. So City were now a public company and anyone could buy shares. Franny Lee never got, I think, the, 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 to be fair to Franny, the problems of the Swales era were a lot more difficult to put right than, than his ability to put them right. And Franny was a wealthy man, but not not certainly not um, Sheikh Mansour standard wealthy, maybe not even John Wardle standard wealthy. So I don't think he really had the money to put in. Mm. And I say, one of the rumours going around, he wanted to float the club, make some money, then get out. I don't know how true that is, but the club certainly did go on the stock market at that point. This, of course, enabled all sorts of people to buy in. And, and among those people were John Wardle and David Macon, yeah. who, of course, were the founders of the JD sports. sports shop chain. Uh, and they'd done very well out of out of this. They were both passionate City fans. And eventually, um, th there's the famous story that after we lost in 98, so we were down in League One, League Two, I can't remember which season it was exactly, but we lost at Bury. And on the GMR, the BBC Radio Manchester phone-in after the game, um, David Macon came on. I remember um, that. It was Remember, yeah, it was a big shareholder at yeah, the time. Yeah, so it was I fairly, I remember Jimmy Wagg saying this was a fairly big thing. So he was keen to get him on. And he launched into a furious rant against Franny's running of the club. And that was basically the end for, mm. for Franny Lee. So it, it, in the midst of this, you know, the Allen Ball era going down to, I still call it Division Three, um, whatever it was in those days, League One or, or League Two, um, Franny Lee went and. Uh, Wardle and Macon didn't want to get actively involved. They were just investors. but they So they brought David Bernstein in, which was one of the best moves perhaps anyone's ever done for City um, prior to Sheikh Mansour taking over. David Bernstein was a very well-respected figure um, in the city. He, he chaired a couple of big quoted companies, so he knew his way around a boardroom. Uh, and he started to get us on a more sound financial footing. He was certainly chairman at the time of the Gillingham game. So we started to get on a more financial footing, started climbing the league. Joe Royal came in. Everything seemed to be going well. And I should also mention that Dennis Stewart came on the board. It's quite important this. Dennis Stewart was basically looking after Wardle and Macon shareholding. They weren't on the board at all at this point. Dennis Stewart was their guy. Okay. Stephen Bowler had died, I think, by this point, very young, uh, and his shareholding was looked after on the board by one of my old school pals, actually, Ashley Lewis, who worked for the Bowler family. Um, so so there was Ashley Lewis on the board looking after the Bowler shareholding, uh, Dennis Stewart looking after Wardle and Macon shareholding. Uh, the chairman was Bernstein. Chris Bird was the managing director, and Chris was a passionate 
City fan who'd come up through the ranks. Uh, and Alistair McIntosh was the finance director. So not, not to push all this, but of course, everything seemed to be going well. We're back in the Premier League. We're about to move to a new stadium. Then being City, everything goes, can I say, tits up again? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there, there seemed to have been two factions at the club, as, as there always seemed to be at City since the, since the 1970s. Um, th- there was the, apparently the, the, the two accountants, Bernstein and McIntosh in one corner, uh, wanting a more prudent approach to buying players. Okay. Then, then there was the Wardle and Bird faction who wanted to go for it. Just to and give, you, sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just to give the listeners a little bit of context, what what era of players are you talking about there when you're talking about the, the fact that there was two different factions in terms of wanting to, the, the type of investment that they wanted to make within the club? What era of players are we talking about here? We're talking about 2003. So we're talking about Keegan, yeah. Anelka, players like Anelka. So Sean, is, it Sean, true, is, it, is it a true story? Paola, particular. Yeah, so this is, that's the question that I was going to ask because I remember around the time, the story was absolutely that David Bernstein walked away primarily because of the Fowler signing because he just felt that they weren't, that they were basically gambling the house, so to speak. That, that, that's yeah. In, in a word, that's right. He, he said he didn't walk away. Well, the, the, I say there were these two factions, and it, Bernstein apparently promoted Macintosh from finance director to joint managing director with Chris Bird. Mm. Chris Bird didn't like that and walked away. Um, Kevin Keegan wanted Robbie Fowler, and I've had this story from David Bernstein's mouth directly. So I've heard his version of it, and his version of it was Keegan came to him to to ask him to pay up the money for Fowler. Bernstein said to him, gave him a number of reasons why it wasn't a good deal as it stood. Keegan went off in a huff and went behind Bernstein's back to John Wardle, who wasn't on the board but was the major shareholder. And basically, this led to Bernstein effectively being um, left in an untenable position, and, so and he Bernstein, walked out. So was Bernstein undermined by Wardle then to a greater or lesser extent in terms of that that particular transfer yes um it makes Wardle out to be a very devious man he's not uh Keegan was probably the I'll talk a little bit more about John Wardle I mean John Wardle is a City fan through and through there's no doubt about it and, and he put a lot of his fortune on the line for City but I think he's a very nice man I've met him a couple of times had a chat to him very nice man but I think he was a weak chairman Okay. And Keegan was obviously a very forceful character. and um, But basically, by getting John Wardle on his side, Keegan undermined Bernstein. So, I, so for I, think, me, I, I mean, so this is, so it's all been, uh, you know, very good so far in terms of the, the, the detail. And you've got a slightly different perspective to the perspective I had. So I, I at this time, was around in the background. Um, so I'd met Bernstein... Uh, just towards the end of the season, we were in the uh, the first division. How did that come about? How did you? Come uh, about well, to I, so I advised. Um, so Investec, where I worked, was the the broker and the financial advisor to JD Sports. So, in essence, uh, Wardle Making and that company were my client. Gotcha. And uh, you know, clearly, given being a City fan, you know, I was just looking for an opportunity to to try and you know, get involved in some way. And towards, I don't know whether it was 2002, 2003, something like that. 
uh, whenever the last days of Main Road were. So I remember pretty much the first, I had the first meeting in my office uh, at Investec in, in London uh, with Bernstein. I think it was Bernstein only at that time. And then I went up to Manchester to Main Road and we had one of the five, I mean, it was almost one of the final meetings in the boardroom. Hmm. Um, I remember using the toilet just off the boardroom uh, vividly. 14 years. Spare us a detail, Stefan. Uh, <laughs> it's just a funny what you remember, eh? Um, so, you know, and City really wanted at that point to turbo boost the whole thing. They they had, and this was Bernstein included. What do you mean this, by turbo boost the whole thing? Well, they wanted, you know, this was a club that had been through the, la- the previous, I mean, frankly, 20 years of yo-yo uh, disappointments, there was some momentum. I mean, if you remember at the end of that Keegan season, there was some real momentum and they felt that Keegan was the right man. And Bernstein, as much as we're talking here about Wardle and, and Macon having, you know, sort of bought the, the Keegan story, mm-hmm. uh, I think Bernstein had as well at that point. And this is early. This is, yeah. so this is pre the Fowler situation. And I think they'd bought it as well. And they were, they were drinking the, you know, the, the Keegan Kool-Aid and it was okay. So, what do we, how do we how do we take this Keegan kind of excitement, invest some some money in it, and actually turn us into a team that could challenge towards the top of the table? And, and so that's, that's right, isn't it? Because when we went back into the Premier back into the Premier League for the second time, we ended up in ninth place. That's right. And and you thought, well, one big push, and we could get top six European football. Yeah. So I've got here in front of me, I'm just looking. And, uh, I mean, I may even, these are the, mani- I'm looking at the management accounts for September 2003. And I'm looking at, it's a, there's a page in there that's got transfer fees payable. And it's got a breakdown of the players that we were, that we'd signed and we were, we were, uh, that, you know, that were at that era. Mm. And it's got uh, an Elka. So we, we'd signed an Elka. Um, you know, the sorts of sums, just, just out of sort of illustration, sorts of sums we were, we were paying 1.4 million per annum for about five years, but that's the sort. That was a big fee, you right, know. Okay. At the time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Distan, 800 grand. Uh, Somme, and then Fowler, as we talked about. Rayner, Sinclair, Bosfeld, Sibieski. So it was that era of players that was, you know, that's what we were doing. The players we were selling or we just sold were the were the you know, the remnants of the team that had come out of the Gillingham game. So yeah. you talk about the Horlocks, the Goaters, um, you know, these sorts of guys. So that's, the, that's the kind of frame that we were at. But I think, you know, as Colin said, there was a big fallout about uh, Fowler. I mean, I remember just, just at the time as a fan, as much as I had some insight, you know, it, it did look a step too far. I mean, we'd gone a bit crazy at that point. And it did look like a step too far. Um, you know, he hadn't worked at Leeds and the fee did look big. Uh, and I remember having a conversation with McIntosh um, at that time where, you know, you could tell the board was kind of in this state of near collapse, frankly, you know, because there was this factional thing where people were resigning and people were stepping back. And there was a very clear disagreement. And it, it was just obvious that Keegan who was a guy that always just wanted one more player, it, you could see that there was a real friction there with somebody like Bernstein, who obviously has a reputation, was a former finance guy, 
the finance director, so by nature is a bit more conservative. And you have, and clearly, you know, you extrapolate what the costs are going to be, what what our revenue was in those days, and it's not massive. I mean, you're talking about, you know, between 60 and 70 million from memory. Yeah, um, that's right. And, 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 you know, so there's not a lot of leeway. If you start spending 6 million quid and your total turnover is 60, you don't have much leeway. And there was a lot of nervousness around the board. And that really set the scene then for the, for the next few years because, I mean, as it happened, Fowler was a complete disaster. He left for, was it a million pound or, or nil? Uh, pretty shortly thereafter. And the club was effectively funded by Wardler Making because it wasn't making a profit. And so we, by that point, know, we're losing money. So the, the point at which the the kind of, it's time to jettison Fowler, which wasn't long after he'd, he joined, um, the club was already kind of financially in a position where it had gone from it looking like, you know, it might be okay. Because I'm trying to figure out the time frame of when everybody's drank the Keegan Kool-Aid and they're going, let's turn us into a top six and how quickly we've gone from that to the fact. Oh, very very, very quickly. I mean, you, you're looking at the end of May, two, sort of 2000, so, so the accounts year goes, and I don't want to get too technical, but it goes to the end of May. Uh, and, you know, 2003, 2004, we're losing 13, 14 million quid a year. Okay. And, at, and at this point, uh, we've moved to the new stadium because we were losing money at Main Road because mm. we only had crowds of 32, mm. so, thousands. So we're moving to the Etihad, or not, what was the City of Manchester Stadium, and Attendances are going up 50%. So you think most clubs go moving to a bigger stadium, they're going to make more money. But we actually, our, ex, our revenue did go up, but so did our expenses. So actually, we're in no better position having moved to the new stadium than we were at Main Road. Stefan. And we'd also, uh, we'd also taken on uh, £43 million pounds worth of loans, some of which was to um, fit out the new stadium, but some of which I think was used to buy players and just prop up cash flow well it went into a pot i mean it's not like uh it is a bit in fairness it is a bit like the spurs deal so uh, those real uh, the really boring people uh that are interested in football finance will have seen that spurs did a something like a 200 to 250 million pound financing of the new stadium earlier in the summer with uh bank of america Mm. and look it's similar to that but just on a much grander scale um well city was on a much smaller scale the spurs one is on a much grander scale and as part of that financing, I think Spurs have got what they call a working capital facility, which effectively could be used as much for the running costs of the of the club as it could be to play pay, play pay wages or make transfers. And we had a similar situation. Clearly, there's no way that if you're the lender, and I can't remember who it was, but it was a it was a, effectively a pension fund was lending money to the club. Ideally, they le- want to lend it for. Uh, you know, bricks and mortar are not to go on, on football wages. But the very nature of a football club is you can't ring fence it. They ring fence their security in that they were secure if everything went tits up, they would ultimately own the stadium and the rights to receive uh, the revenue that come off the stadium. So they were in a very, very secure position. But clearly we could spend some of that money on players. And frankly, we had to because the club had no money. I mean, that's where, just to give you a scale of how little money we had uh, around um, sort of 2005. So one of the things that I helped the club with around that time was, uh, and this will give you a measure of what we're talking about, Reebok City, which is the club shop, Mm -hmm. okay? 
we owned that. That was outside of the lease deal in relation to the stadium. Okay. And we, uh, we owned that property. So we ended up doing a sale and lease back. Again, don't want to get too technical, but effectively you sell the premises and you do a deal on the sale where it says, we'll commit to lease it back from the person that buys it for a period of, I can't remember what it was, but 15 well, to 20 years. Well, we get the cash up front, obviously. We get the cash up front. But this is the key point. We're talking about, I can't remember the exact number, but it was less than £5 million. That's wow. how desperate we were. Can I ask okay. you, can I, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off again, but I, I need to ask a question because, again, I'm coming at this from really a layman's point of view. Can you tell me in a nutshell how a, a, a business like City at that point where you've got capable men, because I would presume that David Bernstein, John Wardle, um, uh, making... Macintosh, for all I thought of the, those people, right, in the end, in how they run the club, how do those capable people end up in a situation where they're losing £12 million pounds yeah. a year? Well, look, look, Colin's going to have his own perspective from a slightly different angle. I'll give you my perspective as somebody that was close to it from a kind of business perspective. Mm. First of all, you're talking about Wardle making, Bernstein just before that. These are, and, and, and Macintosh, these are people with strong experience, credibility, know inside out their, their spaces. So, you know, you're talking, Wardle and Makin are two of the most successful British entrepreneurs there are. I mean, David Makin has gone on to rebuild um, a, uh, another uh, retail business in Foot Asylum from scratch, literally from scratch, having sold JD Sports. And JD Sports is now... Uh, one of the one, you know one of the biggest success stories in UK retail. So these are super credible guys. Bernstein's been chairman of the FA. He was on the board of Wembley. Exactly. These are all super credible people. There's two things that happen. First of all, football is a funny game. So people get emotionally involved, both in the manager, the the ability to sign players, and also to go up the league table. So that is part of the problem. They also work in a very very um, focused kind of public domain so everybody's got a view you know idiots like you and i on this podcast <laughs> telling them exactly how they should run their business is something that you deal with on a daily basis blue moon people posting thousands and thousands of posts you know you live under that pressure walking down the street you think that Wardle and making didn't walk down the street and every single day have people come up to them going Oh, who are we going to sign, David? Who are we going to sign, John? The team's terrible. We've not scored a goal at home since January. They have that on a constant basis. And that plays with people's rationality in terms of making investment decisions. Now, the, the reason that they lost £13 million is ultimately because we're talking about being in a city where you've got partly United, but also being historically one of the biggest clubs in the country, but only, unfortunately, having a turnover of between you know 60 70 million pounds at that time but that I mean, was frankly, that was that yeah. was the seventh biggest turnover in the premier league and the 17th biggest in europe sure I but it wasn't enough but it wasn't it enough was, yeah that's right to the point Again. it was exactly at this point where you had player wages starting to explode but tv deals although moving up not being able to keep up with the inflation that was coming into the game ah okay Okay. So is there not like, a, is there not a, again, forgive my kind of ignorance on this stuff, but is there not like a, a was there not a forecasting? Do they not forecast this stuff and already know, like, for example, 
you know, as long as we stay in the Premier League, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll earn X. And as long as we earn X, we'll... Of course. So, of course. So if I've, got, I've, actually, I've actually got it in front of me. I mean, we, we had a 10-year plan. But, but, you know, a plan is a plan. You can... Uh, and actually, I remember on Blue Moon, I mean, you know, in... I don't even know when Blue Moon started, but I remember uh, uh, Colin writing pieces where where he would kind of appraise what the future might look like and what the revenue might be next year. And I remember us having a debate about it, uh, you know, how credible it was. And this is all pre-Abu uh, Dhabi from memory. I mean, I might be wrong, slightly wrong with the dates, but, you know, you can predict it. If, you, if you're a listed company, you actually have uh, research analysts, particularly the bigger clubs, not so much City because they were on one of the secondary or tertiary markets, but you have analysts that predict it. So if you right now, if you want to have a look at who researches Manchester United from a business perspective, they will have a model that will look at every aspect of the revenue and every aspect of the cost. They will predict into the future what they think the profitability will be. And the club, if they're ever uh, an amount below the expectation of the market would have to make an announcement to saying we're trading below expectation. So you absolutely have those expectations. What you can't um, always look at in terms of um, the, the, the model is, one, where are you performing? So are you in relegation trouble such that you need to spend £50 million to survive? Two, do you have any players that come in and actually are superstars? Sean Wright Phillips, as an example, which obviously, you know, has a massive impact on your top line and profitability. Or are you going to have a whole load of players that get injured or these sorts of things? So you can predict certain things. And, and that's why the Premier League sees fit to do uh, TV deals on three-year blocks or mm. on that sort of basis to give the clubs a level of security and, and the ability for them to forecast out. And that's why they do long-term deals with kit manufacturers and things like this. So that you have, you know, there are less variables and less swings in your model. So, but, look, sorry, again, I want to bring this back to things that, the, that our listeners will, will kind of get engaged with. And for me, you touched upon something very important there, and that's Sean Wright Phillips and the sale of Sean Wright Phillips. Now, talk me through the build-up to that. what What's the financial position of the club in that summer in the run-up to the sale of Sean Wright Phillips? Where well, are we I, well we're, we're, we've got no money. I mean, this is around the same, you know, it's within 12 months of the of the sale and lease back. Uh, I actually was, uh, this, this sounds name-droppy and wanky, but uh, I was actually at the cricket with McIntosh on the day that um, basically did the deal with, with with Chelsea um, to sell him. How does it happen? It happens because we've got no money. You know, we're literally at this point, we're pretty much broke. If you don't sell, we don't buy anybody. Um, and frankly, we need, a, we need a subsidy of cash. Um, he was clearly, he'd had a fantastic season that previous season. Chelsea were buying everybody, everything that moved at that point, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And we got an offer that we considered. I, I think really we talked up the offer. I think it was a good price, even in that, you know, in, in the context of what was going on with Chelsea. Uh, and, you know, in the same way that we saved certain clubs um, under uh, when we bought players like Santa Cruz, we were saved by Chelsea at that point. But all that did really was put off the problem for another year. So, 
you know, and that brings us on, you know, when we come to a minute to talk about the taxing situation and what happens in that in that then season. It, it, it's, you know, when you're living hand to mouth in this way, where, you know, where you look at your model and your model actually suggests you need 10 million quid minimum a year just to pay the bills, mm. even on your own model, you know, you've got a problem. No, I just I wanted just to, to talk about the Sean thing and, and Colin, maybe you were gonna pick up on this as well. Because obviously at the time, um I remember that day very, very clearly because we played a friendly against I believe it was Macclesfield. It, it was Macclesfield, yeah. Me and me and Rick drove up there for the game and it was I think it was in the car on it was on GMR on the way to the game that there was a story that Sean had gone to the game and then the story that was put out effectively was that Wright Phillips has gone there and told the club that he wants to move to Chelsea and then driven away. And that's why the club sold him. In actual fact, the, the, effectively what they were doing is they were saying, for the supporters, they were saying, look, we didn't want to sell him, but he came to us and he told us that he wanted to go. And so we had no choice but to sell him. That's bollocks. But it, I mean, yes, it is. And I... When I got involved in the Supporters Trust, which we'll come on to in a minute, I, I kind of learned how the press and the clubs work. Um, but even then, it was starting to dawn on me. So the stories had started almost from the end of the season, yep. 2005 season. Chelsea will be coming in with a big bid for Sean Wright Phillips. Uh, Sean Wright Phillips is on his way. And, and so we were built up. This was almost certainly City putting out this story, building up the fans for a transfer. Now, I, I, I wasn't at that game, but again, I... We all heard the same story that he wanted to leave, refused to play. And then someone told me, actually, he was in the dressing room in tears. He did not want to leave. It. And it was only when John John Wardle went in and basically said to him, look, we've had a great offer from Chelsea. We need the money. We've got You've got to go. And a lot of people blamed um, Ian Wright for, for that. Absolutely. I did at the time as well. And uh, again, that was a convenient story for the club to put out. But actually, Ian Wright had told Sean to stay because he was guaranteed a place. It was a World Cup coming up the following season, uh, the following summer, uh, and he would be better off staying at City Fee. But City, as Stefan said, City were spending more cash than they were earning. And to be clear, <laughs> just to be clear, right, so effectively what's happening is that David da uh, David Bernstein, uh, no, da not David Bernstein, sorry, John Wardle and David Makin, uh, it's their money. So when we're saying we need to find £12 million from somewhere at the end of each year just to break even. The bottom line is if they don't find it, those two men have to are personally liable for it. Is that correct? They're, they're not personally, not liable. personally liable. I mean, no, you no. know, ultimately the club goes bust, right? So they're, they're the, they were the principal uh, equity holders, i.e. the shares. Yep. The, the, the club, if they'd have allowed it to, to go bust, the club would have been owned lock, stock and barrel by the people that had funded the club, the 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 securitization funders, mm. i.e. a pension fund in the city, they'd have got some managers in to run it and have tried to turn it around. But it would have been a catastrophe for the, for the club. For Wardle and Macon, they'd have lost all of their investment. Yeah, they'd, they'd lent the club money uh, on an unsecured basis. So if anything went wrong, they didn't. that money was at risk. So they would always back. sit behind. So if it, ever went in, if it ever went bust, they would always sit behind the other people that had what's known as security. Gotcha. It's like when you say it's like a mortgage on your house. Effectively, we had mortgaged the assets of the company. We had mortgaged our house to a pension fund in the city, and which meant that if it if the club went into uh, administration, 
there would be nothing that would filter down to water making. So and at this point, yeah, at this point, they put in 20 million between them in, in terms of loans, which was a considerable part of their fortune. Of their own personal money. Yeah. And yeah. Ju- I mean, just on this Sean Wright Phillips thing, so just looking here. So England played Australia 11th to the 15th of August. That's when the call, that's when the deal was done, somewhere between those two dates. Because okay. I was, as I say, with Macintosh. We played, Mac- we played Macclesfield, looking at the dates now on the 16th. And that was it. Yeah. So it, it happened pretty quickly in terms of at the end. I don't, being cynical, I don't think there was any question that summer he was going. Was there, just, I'm curious now, this is just more about transfer negotiations. Was it literally just that they rang for the first time a week earlier and the deal was done in a week? No, no, no not from memory. I can't remember exactly, but they'd been, it was always clear that they were probably interested. Yeah. I think it's pretty low key interest. I think actually the stuff that Colin says about how City kind of got got it moving a little bit, I think there was a bit of that. Um, but ultimately, you know, and City weren't playing with a great hand at that point. You know, it was pretty well known that City were out of cash. So we were lucky. This was a time when Chelsea were, you know, they were buying everything that moved. They paid a ridiculous yeah. fee for Sean. They paid £21 million if, I, if memory serves me right. 25 I think. Wow. There's 21 21 million guaranteed, it said in the account. Yeah. I think there was, was another was 3 million British conditional on top. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was great money for us, yeah. Okay. But, it, I mean, all, all, we got in, all we got in return was Giorgio Samaras. <laughs> uh, and that's really, I think, when, and it should point out, by this time, John, John Wardle was chairman. Bernstein had gone. Wardle had stepped in as vice, I think he was vice chairman. or, uh, And then Kevin Keegan had persuaded him to take, he was quite reluctant, and I understand, I could understand that from John Wardle. Keegan had basically persuaded him to step up and take the chairmanship permanently, which he did. Uh, but basically, it was Macintosh who was running things. John Wardle, I don't think, got involved very heavily at all. But Stefan may correct me on that. Uh, they were both involved. I mean, you know, there was look by by this time. Yeah, it, look, what's clear it's their me, money. Yeah, what's clear for me is that by by that summer, the summer that Sean goes. What we as supporters knew, you guys also knew, which is that the club needed to be sold and we needed to find owners who could actually run the club properly. Because There was certainly a lot of fan discontent started from that point. 100%. I mean, I, I remember very vividly that, that particular season because that's then, that's then Stuart Pearce's season of no home goals and just the... the uh, well, that was the, that was the following season, actually. Yeah. So, so Sean Wright Phillips left in 2005, and, and that's the point. Actually, I became a shareholder for the first time. Um, as a birthday present, I got City shares, actually. So I, I then started getting more involved. And that, that was that first full Pierce, because, of course, the, the first Pierce season was 2004-05, wasn't it, when we nearly got into Europe? Yeah, exactly, and where he takes, penalty. takes over yeah. from Keegan, and we do well, and it feels like, oh, we should give him a chance. And yeah. then we give him a chance, and then the following season is just, I mean, yeah. Well, no, I mean, that season wasn't too bad, but it was the, the 2006-07 season leading up to the takeover, which was the real dial one. But, but the fan discontent started around that 2005-06 season. Hmm. There's no doubt about it. I became a shareholder, and I actually went to the AGM. One of the, I've always heard of these legendary stories about a, the city annual general meeting and how Peter Swales was set up a fire alarm if it all got a bit awkward and everyone would have to go out. And, and I actually went to the AGM and I, it was the first one I'd been to. Um, 
but I wasn't very impressed, to be honest. Who was there? <laughs> who was there? Yeah, for representing City, who was there? The board. It, it was the board. So it was John Wardle was chairman. Alistair McIntosh was chief executive. Um, Brian it, was Bode, the board. it was the board you outlined. I mean, you know. Yeah, Brian Bode. Do they all have Stewart. to be there? Is that, that's, that's the question I'm asking. Do they all have well, to be there? The board turns up to the AGM. I mean, it, 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 it varies. Yeah. I don't know exactly what, what happened in 2005, 2006. But the, the bottom line is, look, these are very difficult. I'm just going to defend the situation just because, I mean, Colin has rightly said, and as a fan, obviously, I was frustrated. But just to understand what it's like from the other, other side, and maybe people don't care, but this is a business that doesn't have any money. So it's it's all it's very easy for us all to be on forums and to, to be criticizing. This is not the city that you see today. This is not the city where effectively money is is no issue for whatever they want to do. This is a club that is down that has nothing in terms of uh, excess cash. Uh, every deal it does, it's got to go to uh, the the provider of the equity. It's got no ability to go and raise money from any other sources because it's done this deal on the on the stadium. It doesn't own the stadium outright, so it can't do anything there. The club at this point is completely boxed in, save for getting effectively a billionaire to come in and start pumping in a whole load of cash. There aren't any other options. It's all very easy to say, why didn't they do a bigger sponsorship deal? The market is the market, and and oh, those. No, I mean, listen, not- I, I, no, I agree with what Stefan's saying. It, he's quite right. The club was boxed in. I think what got what got people's backs up at that point. It's only got my back up, and I know a few people was that we were being told a completely different story. So you got Alistair McIntosh saying our debts are manageable, when actually we couldn't pay the interest on the debts. Well, you of- see, that's that's. That's the sort of thing. I know that's CEO, CEO speak. But that's He's a politician's of... answer, right? Yes, so yes, yes. What he means by that is technically we can pay our debts as they fall due, i.e. we're not something, we're not a club that should that is effectively bust. That's all he's saying. And of course it upsets fans, but it's it the, the, the only point I'm making is that the club at this point was in, was boxed in. And it had no leeway, no, no. and yeah. it needed desperately needed the deal, and that's why in the all you know in the the AGM in December of '06, the club says, "Well, we're talking to people, and you know, let's try and sell it." And and you know, I had a call shortly after that that AGM. Uh, Colin will tell you his perspective on that. He he thinks that whatever they said at that AGM was was a lie. Shortly after the AGM, we put out an announcement that said that we'd had some initial conversations. And really a big part of that was to, to try and get, in the same way that we talked about using PR to get a better price on Sean Wright Phillips, part of it was to alert buyers from wherever they were in the world to the possibility that they could own a football club. Now tell because, me how you come to find uh, Dr. Shinawatra. Is he a doctor? Or did I just well, make that? Well, he says he's a doctor. He's not a medical doctor. Um, <laughs> Now, baby, you need to be careful. I mean, can I, can I just kind of, before we get to the Shinawatra, can I just quickly put some context around the, the 2006 AGM announcement? Um, kind of just before that time, a group of us had got together to form what's called a supporters trust, which is a kind of a formal body, um, a cooperative, really. Mm. One member, one share, 
Um, because we were concerned about the future of the club. We were concerned we weren't being told the truth. Uh, we weren't happy about... Uh, I mean, the club was a one-man band. Macintosh was everything. Macintosh was finance director. Macintosh was CEO. Macintosh was on the audit committee. Uh, th- there was a lot of concerns about the running of the club. Uh, and what, what we wanted as fans was to... Stri- well, one of our key aims was to get fans to... get shareholding fans together under the umbrella of a supporters' trust and others and perhaps get enough shares together under this umbrella to get some what we saw as decent representation on the board. And as part of that, and this is how naive I was, as part of that, we had um, a meeting with David Bernstein down in London. And I remember the date was the State Open of Parliament, 2000, and I think it was October, November 2006. And one of the reasons we're talking about the boardroom factions was there were, there were a lot of ill will between the various factions. So Bernstein had been forced out basically by Wardle, Kevin King going to Wardle over his head. Bernstein had a grudge against Wardle, uh, Wardle and Macon. Um, Franny Lee had been forced out by Wardle and Macon. Franny Lee had a grudge against Wardle and Macon. And Franny Lee was still a significant shareholder at that point with about 7% of the shares, but he wasn't on the board. So you had there was a lot of kind of um, disgruntlement among people like Bernstein, Francis Lee, um, and, and some other people around the club, particularly around the Franny Lee faction um, with the board. So there was, there, was, there was a kind of a bit of a steamroller building up, and we were trying to tap into that. So we, we had lunch with Bernstein, and one of our objectives was to get him to, to agree that if we could force uh, a director onto the board by getting control of enough shares he would be one of those people. We were looking for a couple of people, but he was an obvious one and he leaped at the opportunity. So he was, he was itching to get back on board and perhaps set, maybe settle a few scores. And we walked away from that meeting feeling great. That was a lunchtime meeting. We had lunch in Covent Garden somewhere. And I, I get home in the evening. Uh, I was uh, living, working, living in Northampton at the time. And my phone rang, a number I didn't recognise. And it was uh, Peter Spencer at the Manchester Evening News. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, I understand you've had a meeting with David Bernstein today. And I was completely nonplussed. And I, I was very naive thinking, how the hell could he know that? Were we followed? <laughs> and it, it was a while before the penny dropped that Bernstein had told him. Um, because he just wanted to stir, he wanted to stir things up a bit. Okay. Anyway, to, to cut a long story short, that this this group, there, there were four of us involved. This group, with a lot of support from people in and around the club, I must say, a lot of the shareholders at the club, a lot of um, uh, a lot of even a lot of people in the club were help were, were kind of quite helpful to us, and we got to a point at, at this point sky had 10 percent of city shares because they'd done this thing where they bought 10 percent of a few clubs hoping i think it would help them in the tv market or whatever and sky still they sold i think virtually all the stakes they had apart from ours so we came up with the plan of buying that shareholding we had a wealthy backer wealthy city fan backer who was agreed to fund it we were, were one of the guys on the group had a fantastic contact book uh, and could literally get hold of anyone anywhere in the world, and I mean anyone. Um, and he managed to get in front of Sky and make them and make them an offer for their shares. And we thought it might be difficult, but the, the guy at Sky, I think it was Vic Wakelink, was the managing director. He said, "Oh, I didn't realise we had Manchester City shares. Yeah, you can have them. We're just glad to get rid of them." So we'd just before that AGM, we'd verbally agreed a deal with Sky, and I think it was for about 
They're 10% of the shares. I think we talked about 1.75 million. Okay. So that valued the club at about 17 million pounds at the time, mm. which is kind of laughable, really. There's a technicality there, right? So 17 yeah. million. Remember, the club's got at least 60 million quid of debt. So actually, the yeah, value yeah. that you put on the club was about 70 odd million. Yeah. Which actually is not a million miles away from, um, uh, from where we ended up at no, the end of, at no, the end no. of June. So, so, so we'd obviously done this, done, verbally agreed a deal with Sky, but I think it was the Friday. So it was going to take a couple of days to actually buy the shares. But I say this guy had offered to fund, fund the purchase until we could raise the money to pay him back. So it was quite, it was in one sense, quite exciting because we're on the way to the AGM thinking, yes, you know, we're on the way here. We, we've got Burns, we've got Sky's 10%. Um, Franny Lee, we knew was behind us, 7% of the shares. We knew there was another 5% uh, among the various shareholdings we could rely on. And there were even rumours coming from Franny Lee that um, Mark Bowler, who was Stephen Bowler's son, was prepared to put his 18% in. So from being kind of just a little pressure group, all of a sudden we're potentially looking at a situation where we could have control of about 40% of the shares mm. as a fans group, which is enough to basically give us control of the club. So this is kind of really exciting. I think obviously the club must have known about this. And, and I think the the point I made to you when we were chatting about this before was this was the only way they could stall this deal was to make an announcement. Now, I know that through my contacts, I know a couple of people had approached them kind of late in 2006 about a possible takeover. I think, if I remember rightly, one of those consortiums or groups was backed by Franny Lee, who was always putting in, apparently always putting in bids or trying to find people to front a bid to get back control because, hey, because you had a yeah. game. The key thing at this time, I mean, first of well, all, you won't say we, we, yeah, we, got, we got to the point in 2006 where the club said we're in play. Yeah, and but, I guess but, but, that, that the thing you won't thank me for saying is it would have been a complete disaster yeah, had you applied. Yeah, oh, I'm, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right. hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to stop you both there. I apologise for interrupting you both, but I want to stop you both there. For me, Colin, listening to what you're saying, I'm kind of listening, listening to it, and going, and what happens when you get control? Like if you, <laughs> oh, I wake up in a cold sweat thinking about that. Asa. Yeah, like I mean, like, <laughs> like it's 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 uh, as much as I like the, you know, the the kind of. I don't know what the word is, the holisticness of, of, of having fans on the board and having supporters that own the club. When I listen to the whole, when Stefan tells me about the hole that we're in at that point, and then I oh, listen yeah, to, yeah. to you going, well, we could have raised 1.75 million to buy Skies. I'm going, 1.75 million isn't even a drop in the ocean at that point. Abramovich, as we know, because he's already bought Sean Wright Phillips, is pumping so much dough into Chelsea that the market is inflated to a point where to exist and survive, you must have known on some level that that it was like... No, our, our intention was never to get control of the club as such. Okay. All we wanted to do was get a couple of direct... have enough power to get a couple of external directors on the board who would provide a balance, would, would kind of understand what was going on there uh, and i know things were pretty bad what what they could have done about it i do not know mm. but we wanted we felt we wanted a bit of balance on the board okay i understand that now at this point stefan i guess city approach you well you you said that you you put that you made that announcement that you had interest from investors and that you were looking 
to sell the club. And as you kind of couched that earlier, you were kind of saying that there was a little bit of PR involved in that it was a way of kind of letting also other buyers know. Yeah, that's always an important thing. You know, certain deals are done uh, on a very careful, secret basis. And the first you hear about them in the public is when they're done and signed. You know, you well, get like, like the Abu Dhabi deal. Like the Abu Dhabi deal, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that partly was about the speed of that transaction as well. But we'll come on to that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, for us, it was the opposite. We wanted everybody in the world to know that the thing was for sale, to see what we could flush out, because we recognized that it needed a step change from a uh, local businessman done well, yeah. uh, trying their best, but not actually having the appetite or the pockets deep enough to continue indefinitely. I mean, the thing that, you know, and, and Colin and I will probably always disagree about this. There was a, quite a lot, a reasonable amount of competence around the table. Given the situation the club was in, it wasn't an incompetent board as far as I can see. I don't believe McIntosh did a bad job. I can understand absolutely why McIntosh would wear both the the hat of being the um, chief executive and the finance director. He was the villain. Frankly, because we couldn't afford to have another 150 grand a year guy. Doing Probably that. true, yeah. So, so, you know, it wasn't about kind of deceiving the fans or keeping control. It wasn't about that. I, I think for me at that time, it was about necessity and about the fact it was run on a shoestring for, for, because it had to be. All of the all of the spare cash went on buying players that, with the benefit of hindsight, probably weren't good enough. Anyway, sorry, sorry. I think at the time that the policy was, and I've seen the Macintosh do this at Fulham, we're buying players on low fees because we haven't got the cash, but actually we're paying them quite high wages. So you know, people like the Paul Bosfelts, the McManamans mm. of this world. Yeah. Well, yeah. I like, it's the nature of the beast. I mean, if you're signing yeah, yeah. Steve Maneman, you're going to pay him big, big wages. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that was as much a gain about necessity because we didn't have the capital to lay down to pay the fee. Absolutely. So we, yeah, yeah. We've got a choice. I mean, you know, and this is, this is the thing that we keep coming back to. At that point, the club has no choices. It's got nowhere to go. It's got no other sources of finance. And the people around the table that have pockets have had enough. So how do you find Shinawatra? How, how, how do we get that? Well, there's a, there's a journey to it. I mean, you know, there's various people put their hands up and say, oh, I'm interested in the, in the period from um, from the December through to when, when the deal happens. Uh, Ray Ranson, obviously, is the most well-known. I remember having a meeting with Ray Ranson where he, he talked about how great this uh, investment house he, he worked with was, and that's uh, Sisu, who have destroyed Coventry City. Um, he was. And the, inter- the interesting thing is, Coventry didn't own their stadium either. So you wonder whether there's some sort of pattern behind that with them being interested in City. Yeah, look, it would have been a disaster. They were interested in City because yeah. Ray Ranson fronted it, and they believed that Ray Ranson could make them some money, and they could, and that they could get in very, very cheaply, and then they would be able to do a deal with the people that owned the debt. And, you know, and so the overall net cost of the transaction could have been for them that in their eyes, probably somewhere in the order of 30 million quid. And for 30 million quid in 2007, they could have acquired Manchester City. That could have been very attractive to them. You keep the club in the Premier League for a three, four, five year period and all of a sudden you've made a fortune. Mm. So I don't think, you know, for, for, for an American hedge fund as they were and are, it was purely a financial transaction. Ray Ransom, I felt, was very unconvincing. Sorry, Ray, if you listen to this. Um, I thought he was very unconvincing about his 
uh, ability to fund the next stage of the club's development, about his capability as a uh, effectively as a business leader. Uh, and, and I think the board generally felt that he was not the step change that we were interested in making. So he, he was sniffing around and playing the media game in the way that former players are able to, but he was never really a runner. We did then have contact from uh, Taxin's um, advisor, uh, another one that calls himself a doctor from memory, uh, Keith Harris, um, who did have a track record of football deals. So had uh, just recently to the City deal, done the Newcastle deal and done the Aston Villa deal. Um, he was well-connected in the game. He's now on the board of Everton. Um so he was, you know, and he, he ran a small investment bank that I was familiar with in the city, Seymour Pierce. So he was credible. He said, I've got this guy. Uh, you'll have heard of him, Dr. Shinawatra. Of course, he came very close to buying Liverpool um, and he wants to buy City. And money's no object. Um, uh, we can do the deal quickly. Um, we're serious. Um, and yes, there's a little bit of uh, noise around Shinawatra, but uh, we'll get you a Kroll report that we've had done by the investment bank and Kroll are a corporate investigative house. So they look at political and corporate risk that, you know, they'll give you the report. The report will be as clean as they ever come, which is never clean. <laughs> and, um, and it'll all be fine. And, um, We've we've put him through our internal money laundering, and he's he's come out clean. We've done all the checks, so you don't need to. So let's go ahead. Now, I can tell you the the initial stance of the board was that we're not interested. Um, what? You know, well, Shinawatra was was even before the city deal was very very well known as a controversial character. Um, it was he, loaded, though. You lot were losing 12 million rights, quid a year. Known for his human rights abuses. Uh, as soon as he was linked to the club, I remember Human Rights Watch were on to us uh, saying, you can't possibly deal with this guy. Oh, wow, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he was a, a, a wanted man from a human rights perspective by the sorts of agencies that, that look at these things. So we had that. That was there as an issue, a big issue. And not one that we fully felt that we could deal with. However, as we got through the year, but remember, as we talked about earlier, the club had not scored a home goal from, I think it was January the 3rd, until, well, as we're going through the season. So we're seeing these potential buyers, and you get these sort of weirdos turn up at the ground and want a tour and get the photo taken pitch side and... You know, you have these conversations. Turns out they're absolute jokers. Uh, you have uh, people like Ray Ranson, who has some level of credibility, but is not quite right. We had an American guy backed by an American hedge fund uh, called Fox Payne, who seemed credible and very keen and spent a lot of time and, you know, tried to nobble certain members of the board. You had other members of the board off around the world trying to broker deals with people they knew. So it's a, there's, a, there's a sort of combination of chaos and also sort of evaluating all the, the possibles. But the bottom line was, by the time we got to around May, uh, we didn't really have that many options. We survived so, by the skin of our teeth as well, didn't we, that season? Uh, correct, 
Correct. Yeah, per- and, and perhaps Scott the- home goal from from the January. It's going to be a tough one. <laughs> In fact, we won. Um, we won three consecutive away games at Middlesbrough, That's where we it. never won. Newcastle and Fulham. Fulham. And if we'd won one, drawn one, and lost one of those games, we'd have gone down. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the Fulham game was massive. That that Fulham win was the one, really. Um, but this yeah, is can, not I, can I just ask Steph, Steph a question? That, Sorry, just, just, can I just, just quickly. Ask? When you've got that performance on the pitch, and you're trying to say, so if you're trying to sell a business, it doesn't matter what business it is, you're trying to sell a business, and the performance of the business during the sale process is shocking. You can basically forget about your sale process. And that's what we had. Oh, yeah, we didn't. We certainly didn't have a strong hand. One story I heard was that um, we lost to Wigan at home just before we played Blackburn in the FA Cup. And a, a rumour I heard that, that was that Alistair McIntosh wanted to stack Stuart Pearce at that point, but Wardle overruled him. Was that true? I don't remember that. And, I, and to be honest, I don't think that was in our mind at that point. I think we, we had, uh, from memory, we wanted to get to the end of the season. I don't think, you know, Pierce was never going to survive that season, uh, after that season, yeah, come what may. But I don't remember, certainly McIntosh didn't say to him, not that I remember that, you know, we're going to sack the manager now. Because it was just, uh, look, it's not impossible, but... I think just in terms of what we were dealing with, I don't think it would have been quite the right time because we wanted to do a deal and then to allow the new manager, uh, sorry, the new owner to pick his manager. Uh, and it was just obvious it wasn't going to be yeah. Stuart Pitt. I, th- I think the fear was probably that we were going to get relegated at that point. That would have killed the sales. It would have been finished. And there's no yeah. question. The club... That, so I understand why they would have... ...coming in from, from Wardle and Macon... The club would have been in administration at the end of that season had we got relegated. Yeah, that, that sort of goes without saying. So then, so then the season ends, Stefan. Um, and bear in mind that whilst we're talking about this, I've decided that actually we're going to do a separate podcast about Thaksin's 12 months and the sale to Abu Dhabi. Um, but just talk me through that those sort of how that happens so the season ends you've already got human rights watch people saying you can't sell to this guy's shady guy you've got all this stuff going on you've got that sort of pressure but at the same time you've got the financial pressure of the fact that yeah you've barely survived by this skin of your teeth is the club almost worthless at that point because of the debt it's got and because of how poor the team is and just I mean we've sold off you know the, the team is garbage at that point as well so so, yeah, so, so where are It's we a very, very difficult situation. I mean, you know, we've survived, okay? So we're selling a Premier League club. Now, that, so that gives us half a chance. Okay. You've got Shinawatra, basically, who is playing, we always suspected it, uh, you know, we weren't naive. He's playing a political game in relation to the, the, the Thai situation uh, and the Thai election and the, the fact that the prosecutors might come after him. Uh, we've managed to get uh, Seymour Pierce and Keith Harris and the bank advising him to get the money that's required to do the deal in their bank account or in a UK bank account that well, they no, affect. Before you get there, before you get there, what's the? Did you had you already decided before the season ended we're going to have to sell to the Thai guy, or did you wait until the season ended and then it, it was- does? It, it's never a binary thing, you know. You go through 
um, you you always in a, in a transaction of any type, but certainly in one you know where you're not that keen on the on the most likely buyer, mm. you want to keep some competitive tension in the process. It's an auction, effectively. Yeah, yeah. So to keep the to keep the buyer honest, as much as anything, you want another buyer sniffing around. So we're keeping. There was one particular guy, this American guy that I mentioned before, who I didn't feel. For, he wasn't he wasn't a particularly likable guy. He wasn't particularly knowledgeable, and I didn't feel as though he had huge resources. But he did have a a credible ish private equity house that was supporting the bid and he kept sniffing around and and so we kept him warm but ultimately we didn't get the impression that he was going to be able to deliver and it became apparent from just the behavior and as much as anything on these transactions you can see it in the conduct of the buyer as to how serious they are and taxin was the most serious so you know he would. He did flying visits up to the to the club. We landed a helicopter. He landed a helicopter on uh, on the car park. Came up. You know, was serious. Um, you know, spent the time with the club. Brought his advisors along. There was a, a guy who we'll hear more about in the um, in in the the next podcast. Peraj uh, PM Pongsankt, uh, who was the guy in the photograph with. Suleiman Al Fahim, the uh, Adud guy. Oh, yes. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that picture. Two guys where they're holding a, yeah. a shirt that's not the city shirt, where yeah, they look yeah, yeah, amateurish. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the guy. So that's the guy, Pyraj. He's the guy that brokers the Abu Dhabi deal, and he's the guy that's taxing his right hand man when taxing buys it. Okay. Uh, you know, I was in a helicopter with him and taxing in this surreal world going back down to London, they were serious. And, and really, by that point, they were the only serious bidder we had. And so we were, we were forced to take them seriously, Not, notwithstanding the fact that we weren't keen ultimately to do the deal. They did represent the best bet we had around at the time. And we effectively decided that as long as it could work on a financial basis, we had enough comfort in relation to the political um, side of things to to take that Hobson's choice. I mean, you know, we were at a point where, uh, and, and this is, this has actually been a source of, I've got quite annoyed with uh, Bernstein's statements on this this situation because he's very anti as doing this deal. But I think it's very easy to be anti doing the taxing deal without the intimate knowledge, the fact that we had very few options. So. We decided that we would just have to, you know, effectively hold our nose and do the deal. When you said, um, that, when you said that he'd he'd put um, that that Keith Harrison and those guys at Seymour Seymour Price was it that that, that they got the cash that, that that you'd got Daxon's people to put the cash to buy the club into this bank account. So effectively, it was a cash transaction that you valued the club at a certain amount. Did he have to put, did he have to show the funds to be able to also invest and run the club? Or at that point, yeah. from a board point of view, was it just a case of if he's... No, there's a few There's a few things. So really, this is an offer. It's actually an offer. Remember, the, the club is a publicly listed company at this point. So yeah. the way it works is actually you announce an offer to the shareholders. The shareholders can actually technically turn it down. Mm-hmm. But it was effectively a recommended offer 
uh, Wardle and Makin had agreed certain things in relation to their shares and also in relation to some of their debt. So they took a big write-off of some of their debt uh, as part of the transaction. Uh, and he then makes an offer for all of the shares. He also, I can't remember what the number was, but he also gave comfort or actually had put an amount, and it was a substantial amount relative to the size of the club, into a bank account um, with Seymour Pierce again, um, that again gave us a level of comfort that he would be good to actually spend some money on the team. Because, look, fundamental to this is not just a case of actually us going into some kind of administration or some some kind of distress situation. You know, Wardle and Making were ultimately fans. And they didn't want to put somebody in that wasn't going to invest in the side. Yeah. Uh, that was absolutely that. critical. Yeah, that's why I yeah. asked that question because obviously from from the outside, you, that would be that's the question. I guess the big one is if you talk about the uncertainty around the political situation in Thailand. If he then turns up with the money to buy the club and also a kind of pot going, look, this is the money that I've got to also give to the manager to then buy players. That seals it, I guess, for you guys. Well, it, it has, you know. Ultimately, it was a case of, okay, so if we turn it down, right? So we get to a point where the actual offer is twenty one point six million quid, and there's a whole load of debt, which means the enterprise value, as it's known, i.e., the value of the whole thing, including the debt, is about eighty two million quid. Okay. And we get to that point, and, and I produce a, a paper for the board that says, look. Compared to other football deals that have been done recently, the principal one being Villa, which was done a few weeks before, this is in the range. So this is the right sort of range. It's not a great offer, but it's in the range. And I think it was about the same multiple that the Villa deal was done. So he ticks the box from a financial perspective. It means that the directors of the company can say, yes, we think this is a fair and reasonable offer. He'd also got the, the, uh, the secured uh, debt holders comfortable, not just Wardle and Making, but also the pension fund. So they were also comfortable. And again, they're looking at the situation going, Jesus Christ, you've got to sell to this guy because if you don't, we're going bust. So as long as he's got all the validations from an FCA, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, 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 an organization who has a, a statutory responsibility to check where the money's coming from, as long as we can say that, and as long as you've checked him out in the, the corporate reputation report, we understand that there is some risk, but I think maybe you have to do the deal. And this is a guy that's telling us that he's got 900 million quid that's about to be you know, unfrozen and all of this stuff. Even in the worst case scenario, you know, he's, he's not even in Thailand for them to prosecute him. So we know it's not perfect, but we know also that the consequence of not doing that deal is probably going to be catastrophic. So, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, just to pick up on that, even as a, a you know a fan, the supporters trust point of view, we can see exactly what Stefan said. There is no choice here, really. Obviously, he's not the ideal owner. And, uh, and uh, I'm not sure if I should name names, but uh, I had a well-known uh, Manchester City covering journalist ring me up in an absolute rage about the sale. Uh, well, it'll be David Conn, because I'm, I'm looking... No, no, it wasn't David. It, I don't think I need to go into David Conn. I was talking to David quite regularly at that time. I know David quite well. It wasn't David Conn. It was someone who I would not have imagined felt that passionately. Mm. Um, oh, he, look, he's a, he was a very... Divisive figure. Certainly yeah, on yeah, the yeah. left. Right. 
he was a very divisive figure. <laughs> and I, I, you know, there's an article that, that where I, I, I gave a comment to in just after the deal, actually 4th of July, 2007, David Conn. Uh, and I, I said at the time, you know, uh, there's no guarantee what happens in the future. There will, you can only put certain protections into a transaction. You can't, we can't say, and it's like it goes back to, I don't know, what was that? There was a Cadbury's deal recently where they said they wouldn't, they wouldn't sack anybody in the, in the York factory or something. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. only put a certain number of guarantees into a transaction. We knew that there was some risk. But on balance, ultimately, we had no choice but to go ahead. Uh, and we felt also that the connections that these guys had, and I go back to this uh, Pyraj and, and some of the other people around uh, taxing, in the event that it didn't work out for him, they would be better placed than we were to find the next home. You know, so Taxin had very, very good contacts around the whole of the Middle East. Paraj was based in Dubai himself. Uh, I think Taxin ultimately ended up living and still does live in, in Dubai. Yeah. And, and we knew that, again, you know, maybe that's the out. Interesting. So you'd, so you'd, you'd almost already sort of calculated that well look this guy's got the money right now and he can pay us right now and everybody around us is going we have to do this deal because of the finances involved and also on top of that even if it does go tits up for him in 12 months time or in 18 months time or in two years time he's going to be in a much better position to sell the club yeah well we felt he was going to invest you know pretty immediately in in in, in the side right so straight away you've got a better chance we definitely felt I definitely felt around the table and me personally as both a fan and also somebody sat in front of the board advising them that if we didn't do the deal uh, and let's say we survived, how were we going to perform in the following season? Mm. I mean, you know, I remember we couldn't even, this stand, for example, was on a free, right? And players wouldn't sign. I mean, we lost this stand to Portsmouth on a free transfer. You know, I was saying, you know, we've just got to even, even if it's a three month contract with a, where he can walk out, if we don't do the deal. We've got to sign him. But, you know, he was one of our best players that previous season. So we were going to get weaker, not stronger. Yeah. So we, we were, it was very much about taking all factors into consideration as opposed to the, the kind of perfect deal. Final Nobody question. ever felt it was the perfect deal. Just final question for you. That, that summer spending, that, Saxon subsequently undertakes was that his money or was that money that he that were loans that he took out against the club no I, there was no way you couldn't take a loan out against the club i mean it was ultimately his money okay um now you know where that came from and how that was funded um you know i don't know i mean maybe maybe colin knows but but you know the reality is he had he had money stashed away in various places around the world that he had potentially, I don't know how, how he got, got the money out of Thailand, but um, that money was money that we didn't have. And we couldn't, that's my point that I made earlier. The, the club didn't have the flexibility to go and raise any money from elsewhere. Gotcha. So it was, it had no choice, but to have third parties putting that money in. Now that goes wrong pretty shortly, you know, during the season, yeah, we'll, we'll talk get, about that next time. Next time but it we'll goes wrong pretty quickly that. because they can't pay the bills. But in terms of paying the transfer fees and paying the agents' fees, and there were big agents' fees in that summer, uh, and, and paying for Sven and all of that stuff, 
you know that all that all was on the back of of taxing's cash okay awesome um, i mean my, well one other thing just to pick up what stefan said um there's a story if you google um the words ample rich a-m-p-l-e-r-i-c-h uh that will give you the story about one of um taxing's offshore accounts and how he got that basically he set up a company for a dollar his wife lent the, lent the company money to buy his own company's shares, which were held in the British Virgin Isles. The shares then were split um, 10 for 1. So they ended up with 320 million shares in his own company in this account, which he sold for another dollar to his kids. Um, the kids then sold the shares to themselves personally from the company for a nominal amount. Then they sold them to the Singapore um, Sovereign Investment Fund for a much bigger amount. So, and of course, all the money went back into, and that's one of the kind of tricks he used to get money um, offshore and beyond now, the reach of now, the high authorities. Now, do, is that is that a fact, or do you need to say allegedly at the end of it? No, that's that's fact. That's all okay. researched and all, right. on the web. You can, you can find it. I just don't want my little ninety three twenty enterprise no, to get sued. No, 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 no. There's no suggestion this was <laughs> illegal in any way. It was all perfectly legal transactions. The problem came in. Um, the Thai authorities felt it should be taxable, felt it was a tax dodge, and the standard of regulation wasn't as high as it should have been in Thailand and, and all that sort of stuff. So he did nothing illegal, and I'm not suggesting he did, but it was a very clever way of um, getting money offshore, which in theory he should have paid tax on, but in, he made a claim um, that, that it, it was free from tax, which I, I don't know whether it was upheld or not. Mm. And no, this was I mean, all. Was, I mean, this is it, the sort it, of thing. That was all part of the prosecution, wasn't it? That but it was upheld that they should have paid tax on that money. There was loads of this sort of stuff. Yeah. So I remember in the report, there's loads of this sort of stuff where let's it was like, well, let's let's, let's talk all about, gentlemen, gentlemen. It's been an hour and twenty minutes. Let's <laughs> talk about this all next time because I think there is absolutely an hour that we can do on from the moment Daxin buys the club to what happens over the next 12 months and stay tuned because for the listeners we'll talk about the fact that John Wardle had to lend money to Thaksin to keep the club afloat and that again we were on the verge of going into administration it was an intense 12 months the following 12 months as well am I correct yes I mean we were people don't realize we literally were we could have been hours away from administration at one point right listen I want to say, Stefan, firstly, thank you so much for, I've wanted to do this pretty much for a year, 18 months now. So I'm glad that we've got this part of it done. Um, and Colin, thank you very much for, for coming on. It's been a, been a pleasure. You're going to come on some more next season. I, if you'll have me, I'd love to be on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll get you. The trouble is I, I can't be on with Stefan because whenever I listen to him, I think, yeah, he, I would have said exactly the same thing. So <laughs> <laughs> You can buy my... If if Stefan and I were on together, it would be very boring. It would be my double. You'd have to fight with his fan base, though, because I've been told that the only way that we can move this podcast to subscriptions is if Stefan is on every single (laughs) podcast. He's got his own... Well, I'll have to take a a contrary view, whatever, then. (laughs) Excellent. Well, listen, um, Stefan, have a lovely holiday, man, because you're going away tomorrow, aren't you? I'm away. I am indeed. Wonderful. Colin, have a lovely evening. Thank you both very, very thank much. Thank you. And you. We, will, um, we will speak very soon. And to everybody who listened, who's got through to the end, thank you very much. We're going to try and do these over the course of the season. 
just fill in little bits of, of City's history. I mean, obviously, we're very, very, very privileged having Colin and having Stefan, two, two guys who were so close to, to the heart of what went on through such a crucial period at the club. Um, but we'll talk about more prosaic things in, in, in other history shows, just about players and seasons. In the meantime, as always, if you like what we do, go to iTunes, hit subscribe, send us a tweet, go to our website, 9320.com, and we will be back very soon with another podcast. Thanks for listening.